Hey guys, it's Danielle. 6 a.m. Eastern Time here, Wednesday, September 13th, and T-minus 67 hours until my flight leaves for the MAX conference. Why am I up at this unholy hour? I'm endurance training because my MAX schedule is absolutely packed. Right now, I have eight PD sessions, 12 expo hall meetings, five mealtime gatherings, six expo hall hours in booth 251, a bajillion showcases, and a partridge in a podcast tree. Legit everyone is going to be there. And these five-ish days are packed. So I'm out here staying ready so I don't have to get ready. But the real question is, is Indianapolis ready for us? If I don't already have time scheduled with you, you can meet me at booth 251. I love to meet new people and catch up with friends. Plus, we'll be recording for future episodes in the booth. Later, Gators. Crushed it. Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey everyone, welcome. It's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden and McLean, Virginia. And guess who I'm here with today? Katie. Hey everyone, Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Josh. Josh Benson rocking it from Marion, Illinois at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Kevin. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts. Brian. Brian Zelmer from KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. All right, all right, all right. A full table here today. Um, so today I'm going to be sharing an interview that I did with Tara Bailey. Tara is an agent, advocate, and mentor from Canada. So in honor of Tara's homeland, I'm wondering if you all have been there. I have been to Canada. Yes, I've also been to Canada. I've not been to Canada. Josh has not been to Canada. I was shaking my head no, but you couldn't see that because this is an audio podcast. You also didn't shake it very clearly. I didn't know. <laughs> I just assumed that we were all in a consensus. <laughs> So I'm curious for those of you who have traveled to our northern neighbor, did you feel like it was culturally similar to the U.S. or did it feel like foreign to you? I spent, um, I don't know, I think a long weekend in Toronto once when I was a little bit younger and my parents took us to see Phantom of the Opera. So, you know, Broadway show, pretty good food. We watched curling on TV in the hotel because it was like <laughs> 10. Um yeah. So I don't know that I noticed necessarily any huge differences, but again, I was well, the fact that curling was on TV and it wasn't during the Olympics <laughs> right there. You answered your own question. I suppose that's true. Um, but no, I, as a, as a preteen, I didn't notice any major cultural differences, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. I mean, honestly, besides the, the presence of Mounties, not, uh, not that different. <laughs> So I asked you all that because um, Tara and I are going to talk about um, a little bit about the differences between the U.S. and Canada, because personally, the times I've been there, I've been there a few times, um, it doesn't feel like it's that different of a place. It's obviously a different country. It obviously has a slightly different culture, but it largely feels similar. They also produce or did produce my favorite TV show, which is Schitt's Creek, obviously. Um, but throughout my career, I don't know if this is... The same for you all or not. I've heard what I thought was like a tall tale or like a lie by omission that Canada is a better place for artists to create work. Uh, but I, I just never, no, no one has ever explained to me like why that might be. It's just always sort of been like, I don't know, a fable. Have you guys heard that before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to talk to Tara because she's somebody who works within that Canadian arts economy. And I just wanted to find out like, how it's different for her as someone who's supporting artists 
also running their businesses. Uh, we all know that funding is going to play a role in creating artistic work. So I wanted to give you something to think about while you listen. I did some very surface level research and found that in 2021 to 2022, the Canadian Council granted $457.5 million to the arts and the National Endowment for the Arts in the U.S. granted $201 million. Obviously, there's a difference in population there. Those are different numbers. So think about it. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Cheers. My name is Tara Bailey. I'm the founder of Bailiwick Booking Agency, and we specialize in youth and family programming. I want to acknowledge that I work and play on the unceded territory of the Ashnabi people. Well, thank you, Tara. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I'm so excited to get into this conversation. I've loved talking with you over the years. We haven't done a ton of work together, really, but um, you've just been such an awesome colleague in this field. And I'm so excited to get a chance to to really dig into you. <laughs> Thank you. Do you remember the first like arts experience or spark that kind of led you on this journey of an arts life? And how did you get where you are from there? When I was 18 years old, I went and followed the Grateful Dead for a few months on the road. Seeing that level of performance and gathering and community made a really big impact on me. Uh, fast forward to living in Vancouver and eventually putting on little underground parties with my boyfriend and the DJ at the time uh, really ended up having a long standing impact. So it was more of the community and like the experience and the vibe of like an arts event that really kind of kind of hooked you. Yeah, exactly. What other things were you doing around that time? Oh, I had so many jobs when I was younger. When I left high school, I didn't go to university right away. I wanted to go out and live and experience the world. And I wanted to work. That was primary for me. So I must have had five different jobs. And I would always get into management somehow from music stores to landscaping to making candles. I had a candle making business for many, many years. I think just the variety of experience of work and responsibility and wanting to promote other people in the sense that I never wanted to be on stage. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to elevate others. And then did you eventually go to college? Yes, I did. I ended up studying performing arts management at Capilano University in Vancouver, hmm. where I immediately got a job with the Vancouver Jazz Festival. And then I ended up at a little organization called Art Starts in Schools, which is a not-for-profit, which put artists into schools. And we booked 2,300 shows a year wow. in schools across British Columbia. Wow. So I did all the logistics, the tour planning, and the contracting. And is that similar to what you did for the Jazz Fest as well? I did a lot of art artist logistics and contracts, yes. So a lot of experience in this sort of administration side. What drew you to that kind of work? Just the community and being a part of something. In Vancouver at the time, the Jazz Festival was one of the biggest events of all year. And it was one of the bigger organizations. So, and I ended up working for them for like 10 years off and on. And so how did that go from, um, from doing the, that kind of work to running your own business now? It's a long, long, strange trip. <laughs> you know, I worked for, for the Jazz Festival for probably about 10 years after studying. I went to, I went to university early in my thirties. So I, I really ended up working for, for most of my 20s, just being out in the world. First the jazz festival, then art starts. And then I just felt it was time for a change and I wanted to move back to Ontario. 
and started looking for a job and eventually got a call. And I was actually headhunted at that moment, one of the biggest youth and family agencies in North America and worked for six years, getting to know the conference circuit, getting to know all the major players in the performing arts centers across North America. And I really cut my teeth there. And then um, I decided it was time to go out and, 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 and start my own. And it was just the, the right time and the right place, I suppose, to some extent. Of course, this was 2018. So my first season that I fully booked on my own under Bailiwick Booking Agency was 2019-2020. Mm. We all know <laughs> how that ended. It's also the way I found myself where I currently live. I decided to start a business, sort of move, move back in with family and uh, COVID hit. And actually it was, it was good positioning if, if I think about it now, because I really had a, a lot of backup yeah. with the family. Hindsight on that, I feel like is, is, is nice to have that feeling now that it was ultimately for the better, but I'm sure at the time it felt just like it, it yeah. didn't quite feel that way. And I admire you for, for, for sticking in there. Hindsight is always 2020, isn't it? So, <laughs> I mean, did I know I would end up in the middle of nowhere? No. But am I happy that I did? Yes. And honestly, yeah, it's put me in a great position to run this business because I am a one woman show for the most part. I have a little bit of support, but ultimately it's, it all comes down to me. So about how far into that first season did you get before all the cancellations from the pandemic came in? Well, we started strong, actually. It was one of my best years. 2019, the fall, we started touring. I mean, I think we had about five or six tours out uh, during that year. And obviously everybody, everybody got shut down in March. Right. Right. So we were, I would say three quarters through the season mm. before we were really, you know, we had our hands tied. I'm grateful for that because a lot of what I did happened earlier in the season. Yeah. Did you um, find that a lot of those dates that had gotten canceled in March, 2020 and beyond got rescheduled. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm still working on that. Uh, it is incredible yeah. how long it's taken. We, we were planning on being in the Pacific Northwest in uh, April of 2020. And so I have a tour going out next season, 2024. That's going to make up those dates finally. Wow. So that's four years later. Yeah. This is a long game. What we do is a very long game. Uh, there's times where I have worked for seven years to book something. It's important that we realize that everything's rooted in our relationships and the intent. Do you think it was the relationship with those presenters and those organizations that sort of kept their commitment? Or do you think that it, you know, was a little bit more of like a transactional commitment? Oh, I, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely both. I think when you have a product that people are dedicated to or emotionally invested in, there's a very easy way to make that transactional. So why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your business and your agency? So Bailiwick Booking Agency is, well, now it is five years old this year. Actually, it'll be on my fifth, this is my fifth anniversary of starting this company. Happy anniversary. Thank you. I appreciate that. Very much dedicated to theater for young audiences. In Canada, it is much more common to have this as a part of the infrastructure of performing arts centers in the sense that most venues are dedicated to doing some family programming. It's more of an anomaly for a venue 
not to do that. That's something else to be considered. Canada has a very strong tie with theater for young audiences. We have a lot of social justice work that comes from the West Coast. And then we have a lot of really interesting work that comes out of Quebec because we have funding. So Canada has something called Canada Council for the Arts. And that is an organization dedicated to funding both artists and presenters and even agents to bring this work to the forefront. We also have provincial funding, and this is where Quebec shines because their dedication to arts and culture is very strong. So that's why we see a lot of work coming out of Quebec mm. for young audiences. It's a part of their daily life and it's very much highly regarded. So yes, I work across Canada. It is, uh, it's very different the way that they work here in Canada in the sense of the States. There's more block booking going on here. There's more people working together from the presenter side to get things. It's because it's harder for us. Our dollar is a little, is worth a little bit less. So to bring in some of the international acts that we want to, we need more people invested to make it worthwhile for artists to come here. We're currently creating a new sort of block booking system across Canada that is presenter driven, that is, I think, believe cloud based. So if a presenter wants to, to hire you or your company, they sort of post it in this presenter world and other people can kind of join onto the tour. And what's really interesting is the booking in numbers in the sense that we may have one person interested, but when, once we get five presenters on board, you know, they can actually bring down the price a little bit too, right? Because they say, mm -hmm. okay, we're coming to right. you as a five person block. We don't have conflicts between those presenters when they work together, right? They all know that they're hundred miles away or whatever it is. So they don't have those uh, issues. So when they come to us and they bring us a really big offer, it's almost impossible to say no <laughs> because, you know, you've got two weeks of booking. And are you working to kind of coordinate the artists and the presenters sort of finding that match and helping each other? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to remember that we're still agents. Like this is not going to take the place of what we do. We still rely on that relationship between agent and presenter. So it really still has to come down to the relationships that I still have with the various presenters. Why don't you talk about the size of your roster and generally what you do as an agent? So I have what I would like to call my flagship artist, Lightwire Theatre out of New Orleans. And I've been working with them for 12 years now. I'd say about 80% of my business is, is with Lightwire Theatre. Wow. In addition to that, I have a number of Canadian companies that I promote into the U.S., such as a Axis Theatre Company, who has been performing theatre for young audiences for 30 plus years. It's one of the oldest companies in Canada. I have a number of smaller artists that try and focus more regionally. Some of my artists really don't leave Ontario, where I'm based, or don't go very far, or don't leave Canada. A number of artists don't leave Canada. The, it's so complicated for us to try and get obtain work visas in the U.S., that it's almost a deterrent hmm. for many companies. Uh, if a Canadian company wants to go to the U.S., it's going to cost us at least five grand, five thousand dollars, just to obtain a working visa. So that tour has to be pretty viable, right? It has to be pretty robust in order for us to walk through the border and lose five thousand dollars right away. 
Um, but if an American wants to come to Canada, you just walk in. <laughs> you just walk in. We might tax you 15%, but that's about it. Hmm. But the roster's always changing. I'm always looking for new, interesting things. How I find the roster is always variable. Sometimes social media will lead me to a new artist, and then I need to go see the show, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of the things that I try and, and stipulate in my own business practice is go and see the show. You're not really valuable as an agent if you're not in the seats in the theater so that you have the experience that you're trying to either sell or, you know, provide for others. I think the idea that you have to have been an audience member before you start selling something is is imperative and you really don't see the value. And there's nothing like live theater. I mean, you can watch a video all day, as you know, but once you're in that seat and, and lights go off, the magic happens and I'm not a good agent unless I, I have that experience. And I think it's really important to be authentic and truthful. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I have nice relationships with people like yourself is that we're not going to misrepresent anything. Right. And you can give like your experience seeing a performance and, yes. you know, and you can, you can fully stand behind something and that's, yes. you know, I'm sure that that's really valuable for you. It's imperative. If you don't, if you don't believe in what you're doing, why are you doing this? I mean, essentially, and I know that you and I have some similar tastes, so (laughs) it's really easy to be authentic with you. Well, and I really appreciate, especially in the youth and family world, um, the agents and the work that you all do to curate your rosters and the relationship, because we're kind of a smaller group to really kind of know each other and to know each other's tastes so that, you know, if there is a big tour and, you know, I'm not able to go to one of their shows or they're not able to do the showcasing because that's a huge investment, especially if it's a lot of people and a lot of set, a lot of times it's logistically impossible that we are able to work a little bit more on a relationship kind of basis, not completely, but like if I know that I've seen something from your roster, I kind of have an idea of what it is that you look for. And then I can listen to you explain something else to me and I can watch that video and I can take the whole um, experience of understanding what this artist is based on other ways that I know you. Um, and to me, that's really, that's really valuable when so much of the tours that we do in youth and family are huge, you know, Mm -hmm. set wise and, and, um, people and, and a lot of the, the really high quality stuff that we all are trying to kind of get across the country, you know, it is hard to showcase. So, you know, having those relationships is just, I think it's super imperative. I think we're a unique bunch too. I think the the Theatre for Young Audiences Agent Collective uh, is a real thing. There's been many of us that that have been meeting once a month, once every two months throughout the pandemic. And that just goes back to say uh, thank you to TYA USA, who in the face of the pandemic decided to gather all of us together in our unique infinity groups presenters, producing houses, agents, and that made us all closer. And it was such a godsend in the sense that we had that sense of community right away. I mean, we could get on the phone or on the Zoom with all of our other fellow agents in in theater for young audiences. And, you know, we're all going through the exact same thing. 
And that was really invaluable. And we still meet to this day, as I'm mm-hmm. sure you do. Yeah, Katie and I met through that group. And yeah, we still we still meet with them. We still talk with them. Um, and, and both of us have gotten, like you, so much value. It was really vital then. And it's become so joyful now. I, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I, I'm really glad to hear that. Because it just, it helps strengthen all of our commitments. And because we are kind of like a small group off to the side of this bigger performing arts center, you know, booking ecology, it's important that we're not just colleagues, but friends as well. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to go back to something that you said earlier that was kind of surprising and interesting to me about a lot of the performing arts centers across Canada that um, have family programming as a part of their overall programming mission and and goals. And, you know, when I think of Canada, I think it's kind of the same. I don't necessarily think that it's this a different culture really, but kind of bringing that difference to the forefront and knowing that you kind of work across Canada, but then you also work between Canada and the U.S. Do you have any idea why there is a little bit more of a, um, an investment in TYA? theater and performing arts in Canada than in the U.S.? I'm sure it just comes back to funding, to be quite honest, with the Canada Council for the Arts. We've been friends for a while, um, talk on and off about different things in the industry. And I, like, understanding the differences between Canada and the U.S. has always been something that's like, like, I really don't think that there are that many differences. But then the more we get to talking, I'm like, oh, hey, there is. You've sort of talked a little bit about... um, the Canadian Arts Council um, and and the work that they do, and I don't want to get too into the tax code because um, yes. neither of us neither of us no. do that. We're not experts no. in any way. No. But I am curious, as like an end user of that tax system and the, and the Canada Council, like how do those programs benefit you and then the artists that you represent? Right. So, as an artist, you can apply for funding to conceptualize and create a show and so from the very basic structure from the very beginning of an idea you can apply with a conceptual idea nothing created to the Canada Council and you can get funding to create the work so that creates a lot more work than just somebody having an idea they have the infrastructure and the backup of of maybe 20 maybe 50 grand of a grant for the work to be created i also sometimes get funding to attend the various conferences across canada and the us and and the reason that they fund me for that is because i'm promoting canadian work to external markets and when I get a tour like Tweet Tweet, who's, you know, touring down to Charleston and and a number of other places, I'm doing the job that they want me to do that funds that kind of work. Yeah. So that national system of funding, it's interesting to me because we have it in a way, you know, the NEA has a, a large budget. It gets um, sort of regranted a lot to states and to service organizations. Um, and then there are grants directly from the NEA. But I mean, it's a real difference. And I do think that's important for younger artists to consider where they are going to go or where they're going to start out of those basic infrastructure things and what is possible um, in different places. Yeah, I think it's really important to share as much information uh, as possible with as many people as possible. My recent sort of take on on the way that this business works and, and how to sort of elevate others is to do the opposite of gatekeeping. If I have a friend in this business that is in a certain area and I think that somebody 
should meet them, I will introduce, I will walk a presenter over to their booth. I'm constantly trying to connect people. I think we all need to sort of get on board with, with doing sort of the opposite of gatekeeping and sharing as much information and elevating others as much as possible. You can do it by mentoring. You can, you know, there's a lot of organic ways you can do it. This is one of the reasons why Napama was so great when they had the retreats. We would go and it was one of the first places I met our mutual friend, Christine Cox, was at one of these retreats. And, and, and I went to, to learn to be mentored. And at the same time I was learning and being mentored, I was, I was actually mentoring as well, you know, and sharing as much information. And I think that that's an important way of looking at this business because I think it just makes you stronger and hopefully it benefits you in some way. Just because you lift somebody else up doesn't mean that you lose. I think a lot of people, I think another generation was very competitive. And I think, you know, we're now trying to be more cooperative. You know, we're not all ever going to do the work the same way. Um, no. But you've opened my eyes to a lot of different things about artist Tori. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, you know, I appreciate that. And I hope that I've done some of the same things for you as well. And, you know, it's okay. It's okay to work however you want to work. <laughs> well, I have to say thank you because you, you came at me with some ideas a few years ago that were really, you know, unique. And I hadn't run into that idea of creating a safe space for an artist to workshop their, their new, their new work. And because you maybe didn't have a huge budget, you were offering different things to this artist. And I thought it was really a unique situation. And I'd like to see more of that. So, yeah, we kind of talked about a smaller kind of commission structure that would give some space to like, finish a work. And, you know, I'm in a really lucky position where um, we're in a community center. So we kind of have additional space and maybe some more internal resources that a lot of people don't have. Um, but we're not a commissioning place. You know, we don't, that's not a part of our model, or at least right now, like really strongly. Um, and so, yeah, we just did some brainstorming about like, well, is there a way that we don't cancel yeah. And when we really realized we weren't going to do that, um, you know, the artist was getting another opportunity. A Broadway opportunity. Yeah. If, if there was somebody that was losing in that, it was you. And I remember you saying, you know, I just want to do what's right for the artist. And it's not right right now, but it will be one day. And, you know, we're going to keep this going. We're all going to stay in touch. Um, and I just, I want what's best for him and his career. Just love you for that. And here, here it is again, the gatekeeping. I will never stand between an artist and another opportunity just because I think I have, you know, a, a contract or a commitment. I have artists that work with other agents and I'm okay with that because it means the artist gets the work. And my relationship with them is so important that uh, I need to keep them happy. I want everybody to be fulfilled and feel like they have, you know, their own autonomy. Um, and then I also just wanted to kind of um, touch back on another thing that you said earlier. You started out getting mentored at Napalma, but now you're a board member um, and you're a board member um, at other organizations throughout our industry. And I'm wondering why um, that's something that's important to you. I love to help. So and that kind of just goes to, you know, being an agent as well. It's, it's just facilitating, you know, helping. I am currently on the board of Napalma. I have I was voted onto the board in January of 2020. And I recently joined the board of Arts Northwest, which is a small conference out in the Pacific Northwest happening in Beaverton this year. 
that's important in, in a number of different ways, uh, because I believe that they're going to start doing more of this family programming. So I'm very much in invested in that area, that neck of the woods, because I believe it's a place that I can grow and um, contribute to. And then I'm also a founding member of ASPA, which is the Agencies Does Arts, Performing Arts Agencies, which is basically like Napalma's sister organization for Canada. Mm-hmm. And we had to create that, although Napalma is North American, we had to create sort of a Canadian chapter that is French and English <laughs> that would speak to the Canada Council. Because as much as Napalma has Canadian members, and I am, you know, one of many. Canada Council for the Arts does not want to speak to an organization based in the U.S. on behalf of the agents. We needed somebody, we needed a, a Canadian-based organization to have the conversations with the Canada Council for the Arts about funding. Mm. That kind of work, you know, is advocacy, you know, helping to create understanding and knowledge and I had a showcase last year with uh, Lightwire Theatre. This year, Access Theatre is going to showcase with Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch. We're going to build awareness of good, high-quality theatre for young audiences in markets that maybe don't always see high quality. Mm-hmm. In addition, so it's about advocacy. It's about the work that we do with, with youth and family programming. And, you know, in addition, like I said, I love to help. I'm currently a member of the showcase committee at the new conference max. And so I've been helping put together sort of the youth and family symposium happening there, which is going to consist of a 90 minute professional development session with a number of speakers. And then we're going to go into a one hour showcase roughly with five showcasing artists and four agents or artists pitching uh, in between the showcases as they sort of turn over. That's been really an important work to do because Max decided early in their conception that they wanted to dedicate some time to TYA after we lost IPAY, mm-hmm. which is the International Performing Arts for Youth Conference that many of us went to for many, many years. Uh, in addition to that, I'm also on the conference committee for Western Arts Alliance uh, because again, the West has a special place in my heart and I want to continue to grow there. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, being on those committees like allows you to to advocate for your values of TYA um, in performance. And, you know, I know in being on a lot of those, sometimes you're, you know, you're really kind of doing a lot more mentoring and you're doing a lot of indirect things that maybe don't benefit you. But, you know, having a seat at the table and using that seat, you know, yeah. I think really speaks to... Um, the relationship aspect of of what we're doing and the community. Yeah, I, I do believe we have a community and I do believe it's an important one. And we're trying to go in and, and change young minds and open up experiences for the young audiences. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's super. I think it's super important work. I do too. Yeah, I love it. What I really love too is seeing families come together and having this like shared experience that is valuable for people for the older, the adults and the grandparents, as well as for the younger um, children. And I think that's, you know, why we like lean towards things that we feel do have that higher quality, whatever that means. For me, a lot of times it means being for children, but being also adult friendly as well. Very much so. Um, So Tara, you know, my dear friend, Brian has a time machine that we use on this podcast to go back (laughs) so that you can give your younger self some advice. And I would love to take Tara back to 
um, a point where you're sort of leaving college and going into um, an arts career. And I'd love to know what advice um, you would give that person who's followed the Grateful Dead, which I need <laughs> to talk to you again about that because that was new information to me. Um, how, <laughs> what advice do you have for her as she's gathering her life experience and, and putting that really into this career? Um, I would say I would probably go back and, and tell myself to trust myself a little bit more, take a little less crap from people, but mostly trust yourself. I think we all have self doubt. And I think if we give a little less attention to that and just kind of go with our gut, I might've gotten here sooner. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting idea. I've thought a lot about this because I listen to your podcast every week and I hear you ask everybody these, this question <laughs> and I think about it and that, and people's answers are always quite, quite surprising, but essentially there's some sort of unity here that people sort of come to, which is yeah, trust yourself. And what do you like most about the industry right now? Always the people. It's always the people. Like I told you, my favorite part is is coming together and gathering at our conferences. I know it's hard for some people, uh, but that's my f absolute favorite part is is being with my colleagues and, like I said, friends. Well, thank you so much um, for talking with us today. I'm really looking forward to seeing you. Um, I think we'll both be at Max's coming yeah. year. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to being able to catch up, taking in all that work that you've been doing, advocating for the TYA symposium and, and putting that together. I'm very appreciative of that. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I look forward to it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you too, Danielle. Cheers. Oh, Danielle, I loved this conversation that you had with Tara. Thank you so much for sitting down with her. I loved hearing about Tara's career. And I especially loved how much you really dug into the business side of what she does as an agent and the differences between Canada and the United States. And um, when I went to my very first Arts Midwest back in 2017, I sat in on a block booking discussion. And that was kind of my first foray into that territory. And Back then, we were having discussions about the differences in block booking between Canada and the U.S. So I loved hearing more about how they're handling that from a presenter side, as well as, you know, kind of from the agent side, how it's not necessarily going to replace what agents do, but it brings a different element to it. And it makes it easier, frankly, to block book in the way that they're being a lot more collaborative. We constantly are having conversations in the U.S. about, well, we should block book and we should do this and we should do that. And we can never quite get over the hump, it seems. Um, and so I really loved hearing more about that and seeing kind of how that has changed and grown in the last six, seven years. Yeah, I have to admit, actually, in Pennsylvania Presenters, we had a big discussion about block booking because that's how our consortium started. And it used to be so strong and then eventually over the years went away. And now it's almost never heard of, but people are still interested in it. And I don't remember how somebody informed me, but they told me about this system in Canada and they connected me with Judy Harquail from on Ontario presenters. And I actually, uh, Judy was, was gracious enough to have a meeting with me and went through and talked about their system. And because of the way that Canada is helping fund things like that, and because of several different things with their system, it was something that we would not be able to do here. It just, it was, it would be cost prohibitive for, a, for an organization, at least like Pennsylvania presenters without some kind of significant support mm -hmm. because it's very robust. Like their system, as Judy was explaining it to me, I mean, she went into details about how it works and it's, it's incredible. But she also explained to me how a lot of their 
venues are so remote from one another and they're in places that a tour, even if they offered them like extra money would not come to them because it just doesn't make financial sense for a tour to go all the way up out of that way. So this block booking, it just helps bring tours up through Canada and parts of Canada that would not have them. So um, it, it was just, you know, incredible to learn about. And I just wish that we were able to have something like that too. When, when Tara described that as an agent, she can get funding to attend a conference and sell a show that an artist also got funding to develop or, you know, maybe even in other ways through the Canada Council. And, you know, in the U.S., we're so used to, well, if, you know, you are funding something through, say, like a state grant, but it's like actually regranted through the NEA that you can't match it if there's a match required with like local funds that ultimately were funneled through the NEA. And it's just such a fundamentally different way of thinking about funding and what's appropriate or acceptable and what's not. Like it's just, it's so interesting. Tara made a comment, you know, to the extent that like companies are given the infrastructure to develop new work kind of more freely, it seems like, than in the U.S. And I think that speaks to cultural differences in how Canada and the performing arts industry takes theater for young audiences and, and theater for families more seriously than we do. Yeah, Tara did really kind of highlight some some big differences on that cultural aspect between the U.S. and Canada, um, just like Katie said, but also just talking about just the financials of all of that. It seems astounding to me that a U.S.-based artist can go into Canada for, for no money and get paid. Um, but then just to get into the country, they have to pay a fi- like $5,000 in a visa. And I think the visa conversation itself is, I mean, a much wider, much broader conversation than I think we have time for because that has has changed significantly in the past three years. And that five thousand dollars is is a generic yes number and it based on the number of cast members, production crew members, whatever you have, that number grows and grows. Exactly, exactly. And so that co- and it's becoming harder to get those visas and it's taking more time. And so just that whole aspect is I mean, was was really surprising to learn that, you know, as long as you're a U.S. based artist, like you can walk right in, which is crazy. That kind of begs the question about U.S. policy and how within U.S. policy, there isn't a value on international art and how it could affect our cultural atmosphere. And and instead, there's a there's a paywall for international art to get to people in the U.S., and so there's actually a restriction from our government for the access to international art and inter- international acts. Yeah, at certain times in our history, we have actually used art and culture as a way to build bridges to other countries and essentially smooth over geopolitical conflicts. So <laughs> it's to your point, Josh, I think that's super interesting that in our culture, we value diversity. We are this melting pot. You know, we talk about those things all the time. Like there is a restriction on what sort of art and culture can make its way here from other countries. And um, that's something very interesting to think about. Danielle, at the beginning of this episode, you talked about the amount that the Canadian government spends versus what the United States government spends. Yeah. Did you do any math on that? I did. My nerdy brain couldn't take it. So I converted the Canadian dollars into U.S. dollars and I looked at both of the populations and divided those figures and found, at least using the numbers that you mentioned, uh, the U.S. spends about 60 cents per person per capita on the arts and Canada spends about $8.85 per capita. So that's a huge difference. That is astounding. And for you know our listeners obviously couldn't see you do that. Brian did the conversions all in his head. No calculator. <laughs> Didn't have to look up the rate, just... 
like that just is untrue. Just... I used ex- I used Excel oh, okay. actually. All right. <laughs> He's a real mathlete. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I just think that think that speaks to the value that we put on arts and culture as culture um, and the investment that we want to make. Like we talk about in this industry as budget, as moral document and where you spend your money is a reflection of your values. And so (laughs) what does that say about our two sister countries that one is investing that much more into artists and venues and the people that are making those things go like Tara, the agents than we are here in the U S can we just talk about how awesome Tara is just as a person? And I loved, I, I was actually inspired by how positive she was with the situation by opening a brand new business and the pandemic hits. And yet, you know, Danielle's like starting to feel bad for her. And then she's like, no, it was actually really a great year for me. And like, it was just really cool to hear. And I just, I think shows Tara's personality and how and why we all know and love her. So one of the things that Tara said that I really loved was as an agent, you can't really sell a show until you've been in the room and seen the show in person. It's a completely different experience than seeing a video of a production. And to be able to really sell a production and be able to tell someone about a production, you have to be able to tell them about the experience of the production. And that was just a little drop of genius that she just threw down during this interview that I really loved. And I think that not only applies to agents, but it applies to us as presenters as well. If we haven't had the opportunity to feel what that performance is like, how are we supposed to sell it to our audiences or talk to funders or donors about, you know, the piece of art that we want to present? So it's one thing I took away from this interview and taken away from what other guests have said is that idea of like really needing to see the work. So I've worked really hard and I'm talking whenever I'm talking to agents and artists now, I'm like, where are you going to be close to me so I can come see you, right? Whether we're going to do business this season or not, like I want to come see your work. I think it's incredibly valuable for an agent like Tara and people like us presenters to be in the room so we know what it feels like. Absolutely. I think the best thing about listening to this interview with Tara is that in about the first two minutes, you can completely understand like what I love about Tara and the fact that, you know, I didn't expect her answers to be like, oh, I fell in love with the arts because I followed the Grateful Dead around and because I like I to know. throw big parties. <laughs> like, I want to know more about the underground parties, I, yes. too, Kevin. Yes, I was like, uh, I just I, I love that because most people have that, you know, I don't want to say standard answer, but like, oh, I had this like this experience and this and this led me to this. But like, she's like, no, I saw the Grateful Dead and I fall. Actually, sorry, I followed the Grateful Dead and, you know, and it went on from there. I was like, that's that's amazing. amazing. Well, and she wanted to take her 20s and just live and work. And that's just, I mean, we have this like very revolutionary concept of the gap year now, right? Of like one year to sort of like live and do some working and get some like non-teenage experience before going to college. But, you know, sometimes you know who you are and like, it's an awesome idea. So I will have lots of questions for the next time I see Tara um, about this. So. In listening to this, Danielle, I felt like a little bit of a kindred spirit with Tara because she said that she's a helper. And when you were talking about all the different committees she sits on and boards she sits on, I just related to that so much because I I do a lot of that as well. So I run a lot of committees and boards and that sort of thing. So I just felt Tara's passion for showing up in spaces that she feels passionate about. And it doesn't come, I think, from like a self-serving place, but you could really tell her passion for developing youth and family programming in the Northwest, right? That's an area she sees as not being served right now. And as you said, like she can bring her voice and her values to the table. And I, I really, truly feel like she is one of those people that is going to put in so much and 
that is going to return to her in spades, right? In terms of relationships and being able to better serve her artists and getting a better sense of what is going on industry-wide. So she didn't say as much, but I think it's a great example to set and a great piece of advice that like, you only get out of something what you put in and showing up and being present and sharing your time and talent and energy like that is only going to help you in your career and is only going to make our industry better. Kitty, thanks so much for summarizing um, all of the reasons that I just love Tara. And I learned a lot about her as somebody who's working to change theater for young audiences across borders. And I do want to wrap up this conversation to just say um, sort of like I think what we've been thinking in this conversation and that funding and, you know, dividing a very large high level number per capita is nuanced. And there are a lot of different factors that affect funding. There's a lot more private and corporate investment in the arts in the U.S. um, than there is in Canada and abroad. So while there's like very disparate numbers, it's not like those are the only arts funding that's available. And so that's like a big part of this nuanced conversation. But it is kind of just a way in on how do things operate on an individual kind of level. Um, And, you know, hopefully we'll have some more conversations about funding because... You know, we need it. So thanks, friends. Bye. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? (laughs) I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ines every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. Uh, but I can't speak for each of you, yeah. so I'll let you do that. One I of the think... things that she said, unless you want to go, Kevin, sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> We're all so freaking polite. <laughs> Damn it, Canada, you're rubbing off on us. <laughs> we used to just cut each other off and say. One of the things that Tara said that I really loved was... Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I love when she says sorry. I really do. I wish she would say it all the time. She does. But not in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> no. Fucking love her. <laughs> I do too.